to be a blessing to his people, then we say, well, in a similar sort of way, whether it's authority or leadership in a church or in a home or in a business or even in government, we recognize that authority rightly used can be a good, beneficial thing for people and especially for God's people. So it's important that as people who gather together confessing and identifying ourselves as the people of God, that the way that we live together, the way that we view issues of authority and submission and leadership and, and so on, is in harmony with the ways and the will of God himself. Otherwise, it, it, it calls into question the, the miraculous, life-saving, life-changing power of our king. We want his good rules to be made evident in our midst. Again, it just struck me as we were saying, do that what you will. Titus chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 5. Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I direct you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, or that could be having children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to love your truth that we find you here in Titus, especially on an issue that oftentimes can be neglected or disparaged. In, um, in our particular day and age, we know that by nature we are prideful, rebellious people, but it's through the work of your Spirit that you give us uh, humility of mind and a desire to see your rule and reign made effective in our lives. We pray that that would be done as we adhere to your word and the instructions that you give us here this morning, even on the importance of church leaders. Help us, Father, to demonstrate, not just in our words, but in our way of life, the truth that cultivates godliness in your people. We pray this in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Alright, so, you've been called in as a church consultant, all of your church consultants. This is where we're starting right now. You've been called in as a church consultant because there's this small, ragtag group of Christians who have found each other, who have met each other, and they've decided, well, we, we've got you know, more than just a couple of us. We ought to think about starting a church. Like, let's, let's make this official. So you've been called in as a church consultant to advise them on what they need to do to get this church off the ground, to get it up and running, to get it started. And in addition to that, you know that the particular Place, the, the location for this church is, is not necessarily in an area or 
traits of other Christians elsewhere in the New Testament. Right? Paul says that a church leader needs to be a man who is self-controlled. You know who else is supposed to be self-controlled in the church? All of us. Paul says that a church leader, a pastor and elder, needs to be faithful to his wife. You know what other men are supposed to be faithful to their wives? All Christian husbands. Right? That, that's the idea. It's not that Paul is saying that in order for someone to be a leader in the church, he's got to be in another class. That, that's not the, the, the main point that Paul is making. What Paul is doing, though, if we can frame it positively, I think what Paul is doing is he's stressing the fact that the people that you need to have leading a church, leading a local congregation, needs to be the kind of person that you can point to, that you can point others to and say, this is what it looks like to live for Christ. Not this is what it looks like perfectly, but, but here's someone who is growing, who is striving, who is being made like Christ more and more. Here's someone who is utterly committed to the authority of God's word in his life, in his worldview. So that not only, could Paul say, Titus, you need to make sure that you have men who can lead by example, who can say to their brothers and sisters, come walk with me as I walk after Christ. And that's ultimately what we're doing. If not only do you want that, but you also want leaders in the church who are not going to discredit the word that they preach. <laughs> 
If, if you have a man who, who by appearance looks like, sounds like, acts like a good godly man, a good Christian leader, but he's a train wreck at home, he's sort of, he's domineering, he's not gentle and sensitive with his wife, he rules with a heavy hand, he belittles his children, right, that sort of thing, he's, he's king of the castle, that, that kind of demanding and expecting thing. Listen, he may, he may go a while okay in the church, but, but because that, in fact, is probably a truer reflection of where his heart and mind is, that inevitably is going to creep out into the church. You can't be domineering and overbearing with those people who are closest to you and not end up being domineering and overbearing with others who are put in your charge. What does the man look like at home? If you interviewed this man and he gives this kind of an account for himself, could you call in his wife and have a private conversation with her? Would she give a matching account? If a wife cannot validate her husband's godly character and desire to walk with the Lord, that probably means that this man is not ready yet to be a leader in the church. Give him some time to grow in the church. Or if the children are found to be more fearful of their father than loving their father because of the way that he treats them, that, that's a red flag. That's not a good sign. But it's not just that he needs to be a book approach or a model of this redeemed new Christian life in the home, but virtually in every area or walk of life. Again, we need to stress that doesn't mean perfection, but it means on the whole, as you look at this man in his dealings with other people and how he spends his time and how he chooses his work. 
sensible. Some people have the idea that if you actually give thought to something, right, you see something in the news, your knee-jerk reaction is not to turn yourself into a keyboard warrior and go to social media and begin to rant and rave about what you saw here or what you saw there. Sensible means you actually take some time to think about not just what ought to be said, but when you should say it and how you should say it. And in that respect, Paul says, these leaders are able to set a good example, a good model for the rest of the body to know how they can react to certain challenges that they face in the culture and in life. But in every way, what the church wants, what the church ought to clamor for, is to have godly men who are leading them, not because these men are hungry for power or Because they are determined to pursue Christ in their life, and they are so committed to pursuing Christ that they want to pull as many people as they can to pursue Christ with them. That's what the church needs. Let me say a word about not just who the man is, but what the man does. So, you need men with godly character, but you also need men who are fixed. On the word. So down in verse 9, Paul says that these men need to be the kind of men to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute or correct those who contradict. Let me, let me take that in two parts. One, Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with or which lines up with the teaching. I think that what Paul says here is something similar to what we saw last week in verses 1 through 4. Go back down in the previous verses to verse, what is that, verse 1? Remember we said that, that Paul, when he described himself, what he gives his life to in verse 1, is that he's an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And we tried to point out at least briefly that what Paul seems to have in mind there is, is that on the one hand, I want people to know the basic truths, the basic confessional elements of their faith. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, right? A confession of faith. I want them to have that. I want to build them in their faith. But I also want to build them in their knowledge of the truth. I want them to grow in their ability, not just simply to pair 
what those statements mean. There are lots of people, in other words, who can say, oh yeah, we agree, this is the way that a lot of cults are actually built, right? They'll take a phrase or they'll take a term and they'll say, oh yeah, we agree that Jesus is so-and-so. And it sounds like, by way of faith or by way of confession, that they're on the same page. But the minute that you begin to ask questions or you begin to explain what it is that they mean by that statement, all of a sudden the differences begin to come out. The second point is this. Pastors of a church need to be the kind of men who soak in the Word, who grow in the Word, who become increasingly skilled, not just at understanding it, but in, able to but in order to communicate it, so that not only do they know what things we ought to confess as Christians, they can also explain why we confess them. What that means, why it's important, why we can't give ground on this issue, but we can give a little bit of ground on that issue. Do you see? You need men who know the word well enough that they can provide that kind of instruction and direction. And you need men who are steeped and fixed in God's word so that Here's the latter part of verse 9. So that he will be able both to exhort or to encourage in sound doctrine and to correct those who contradict. Both. What the church needs in every age.
who say, you know, Mary, I think that you're getting off base on this issue here, or you said this about this person. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's right. I don't think what, that's what it means. I don't want to be the kind of person who is so utterly prideful and self-confident in himself that I just dismiss that kind of correction. And you don't want to be the kind of people who, when the Lord is good enough and kind enough to bring correction your way, you don't want to be the kind of people who would ignore and reject that kind of necessary correction to keep you in the path. We want our pastors to be men who are going to be faithful to God's word, whether that is in comfortable ways or in uncomfortable ways. And we also want to be the kind of people who love to have God's word brought to bear on I love it when God's word encourages me and spurs me on to love the good deed. But you know what I also love? I love it when God's word brings his fatherly hand of correction on me and holds me fast from going headlong into sin and disobedience and destruction. That is not always pleasant. It is not always comfortable, but oh, how my soul needs it. Oh, how our souls need it. And God has been good and kind and gracious to Edward to give us for generations now, and hopefully for generations to come in the future, godly men that he has raised up, godly men that he has brought our way to do this very sort of thing. And we ought to praise the Lord for it. Now with me.